good to see everyone today and to be seen by you. Thank the Lord for His grace. Um, welcome if you're visiting. Uh, it's a blessing to have you with us. And um, for those who may be unaware, our custom is... Anne. Amen. Thank you, my sister. Our custom here at Ecclesia is to um, go through the scriptures, to go through the scriptures. You know, in um, Matthew 4.4, 4, when Jesus was being tempted by the devil, the, the Lord said to Satan, man shall not live by bread alone, but by some of the words of God. Is that what he said? Oh, 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 all oh, right, oh, so forgive me, forgive me. He said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every other word. Is that what he said? No? <laughs> All right. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by your favorite words. Oh, okay. <laughs> That's the King Heretic version. <laughs> No, we know that the Lord said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every single word that comes from the mouth of God. And so it's a, a bit like dinner time. Um, if, if we were left to us as children, we would have only had our favorite meals every day, even to the point when we got tired of them. But... Uh, parents and carers know that we need to have a balanced diet. I remember when my gran would put okra on the, on the plate in front of me. No, I'm sorry. Sorry, sorry. Sorry, sorry. Listen. Listen. The okra didn't agree with me to this day. I don't, I think. Once, twice, not thrice. That was it. But I still had to have some vegetation in me. You know, I never used to love hard food. What we might call hard food. Yam, dumpling, green banana, cho-cho. And, and, but I love it now. Hey, come on. Come on. They said to Usain Bolt, they said to Usain Bolt, what is it that makes you run so fast? Makes you so strong? He said, hard food. He said, I come from country. <laughs> And he actually comes from the same parish as my family. Just saying, just saying, just saying. Just saying, just saying, just saying. My claim to fame comes from Trelawney, like my people. Uh, countryman. Yeah? And that hard food is what makes us strapping and strong. And that's what the Word of God does for us. Even when it's a bit starchy, you know? And, and, it's, and it's not so flavorsome. It's still nourishing. And so it's important that we um, are committed to taking in, reading, studying, meditating on the Word of God. Amen. So we don't make any apologies for that. Um, we're not here to kind of jump on the, the latest wave or trend in preaching. Um, but we're here to seek the Lord, to reveal himself to us through the Bible. Thank you, Paul. Through his Word. And so today we're going to be in Luke chapter 19 as we continue in our series um, looking at the gospel according to Luke. Luke presents to us Jesus as humanity's only hope. That is a categoric and definite statement. It's non-negotiable. Jesus is humanity's only hope. For some people, that's going to be a struggle to understand, but it is the truth. And today, as we look at Luke 19, we're going to uh, consider the, the coming of the king, consider the fact that the king has come. The king has come. So it's, it's quite a lengthy chapter, 48 verses, and so I'm going to pray and then take it section by section, section by section and commentate and unpack as we go. Lord, thank you so much for today. Thank you for your goodness, mercy, and loving kindness upon us. Thank you, Lord, for the fact that we are here and able 
You've given us the faculties, the ability, the capacity to, Lord, engage with you, engage with you through your word, by the presence of your spirit. And so, Lord, we ask that you'd give us ears to hear, that you'd give us receptive hearts. Even as Bertram prayed earlier, that we would receive the king, that we would accept the king, not reject the king. And so, Lord, impress these things on our hearts, that we would find peace in no other place other than in you. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we get to Luke 19, we come to a section of the the text that is very familiar. The first 10 verses, verses 1 to 10, is a a pretty, probably one of the most common Bible stories that if you've had any experience of children's church, either being in children's church or teaching children's church, that would be heard in that environment. In the first verses, we meet a man called Zacchaeus. Or Zacchaeus, as some would say. And this story of Zacchaeus is um, very well known, but also not very well known. We're not looking at the children's church version today. Now, before I unpack this first 10 verses, I want to just set up this chapter. The sound of keys. We recognize that keys represent right of access, recognize authority. How often is it that people will ask for their own set of keys? Not necessarily because they need them, (laughs) but because they want that sense of validation. I have the right to come and go as I please. For some of us growing up, the sound of keys was, was what? It was either <laughs> the sound of dread. <laughs> Listen, I remember. I remember those days. Listen, I remember hearing the sounds of the key in the door and being filled with terror. I lost sight of the time. The kitchen sink is still full of dishes. <laughs> and the key is in the door. It's too late. <laughs> Judgment come and mercy God. <laughs> Listen, you knew at that moment it was a problem. And the best I could hope to do was slide into the kitchen and stand at the sink like I've been, like I'm. I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. And you're just nonchalant, just, just casual, just, oh, oh, you're home. <laughs> Hoping that I'm not going to get lit up for the chores that I've not completed. Because you know the instruction was, make sure this is done before I get home. So the sound of the keys... <laughs> At that moment, is enough to strike fear. Jesus is the king, and he holds the keys. When we hear the sound of the keys in the hand of the Lord, how, what, what does that do in us? When the king comes, and we'll see this unpack, when the king comes, and we hear the, the sound of his coming. Now, you know, the reality is that there is a level at which it will be dread, but it can also be delight. I know there were certain times I was grateful to hear the sound of the keys. When I'm hungry. <laughs> there weren't no snack food left. There weren't no dry food left in the house. And it was just dinner time and waiting on dinner time. And the sound of the keys meant that salvation had come. Belly was gonna get belly was gonna get quenched. (laughs) And I rejoiced. The sound of the keys can be 
dread, or delight. Depending on you and where you're at in that moment. And this is what we see in chapter 19 here. The king has come. Hear the sound of the keys. And the first thing we see is that the king has come to save. Let there be no mistake. God's intention is to save. His intention isn't in the first instance to come and cause sufferation. So let's look at verses 1 to 10. We see here, Jesus entered Jericho. Now, Jericho was like the Miami of Israel. It was like Palm Springs. It was like Honolulu. Not necessarily just in terms of the, um, the, 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 the geographic kind of nice. It was, a, it was an oasis in the desert. So it was a beautiful place. But it was a place like, if I say to you the south of France, you just think about yachts and, and expensive luxury vehicles and rich people just loafing about. Yeah? So when it says Jericho, imagine that in your mind. And we see that affirmed by the fact that, who do we meet? A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was what? A chief tax, not just a tax collector. Chief. This, like, this is baller's paradise. This is the place where money, the, 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 the made people, the made men, the money men, that's, this is where they go. You know, it's like, there's those places, it might be um, the Bush Khalifa in Dubai. So, we meet Zacchaeus, chief tax collector, and being the chief tax collector, it makes sense that it says he was wealthy. He was wealthy. Now, it's worth noting that as a tax collector... He would have been hated by his people. We've, nobody loves the tax man, right? The tax man has the power to strike fear even in the most powerful of individuals. We were having a conversation the other day. Apparently, the tax man, right, can watch you file wrong taxes for years. Just sit back. Am I lying, Deji? What you file, bro, and then all of a sudden they just swoop in with the HMRC cape and say, you know what, we, not, we want to just examine your records for the past seven years <laughs> or more and then, and then just bill you for all of your incorrect filings and maybe even fine you on top of that. So, we understand in our society that the place of the taxman is, is not really a, a greatly loved position. But for the taxman in Israel, it was even worse. Because they were people who were in league with the enemy. Israel was under enemy occupation. They were being ruled by the Romans, and the tax collectors were collecting tax on behalf of the occupying enemy. And so they were traitors above traitors. They were the lowest of the low. And so Zacchaeus was the chief of them. Another reason why the tax collectors were hated was because they were extortioners. So you imagine, you're in a position of power. You've been appointed by the ruling authority to collect taxes from the people, to collect money. And at the end of the day, you can go and collect in whatever manner you see fit, as long as you meet the expectation. And often the tax collectors would negotiate for their services the amount of tax that they would render to the Romans. And so if the taxation was 20%, they might say, look, um, let me... Uh, Get, bring in 18% and then, you know, keep the rest for my troubles. 
And depending on the relationship with the, the ruler, between the ruler and the tax collector, they might get a larger or a smaller allowance in that regard. But then when they go to the people, they will go to the people and make all kinds of rules, just like those payday loans, just like those loan sharks that would turn up on the door and, oh, you haven't paid yet by, um, by tomorrow. Okay, well, then we're going to need to add another 150% on top of that if you don't pay by the end of the week. And so there was a level at which they would abuse their position and be guilty of extortion. And so his wealth wasn't necessarily just wealth because of his status and position in society, but also because of potential ill-gotten gains. And yet, this man wanted to see Jesus, but because he was short, could not see over the crowd. And nobody was clearly giving him any pass, regardless of his status. So he ran and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. And we'll come back to the sycamore fig tree in a minute. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. Notice, Zacchaeus was glad. And yet, the people who saw this began to mutter, complaining about Jesus. He has gone to be the guest of a sinner. So they saw this interaction. Zacchaeus has climbed up the tree. Jesus has noticed him. It's not even that he's called out to Jesus. Jesus has noticed him. Called out to Zacchaeus. Come. I'm coming to your house. Zacchaeus was glad, but the people were mad. Now, it's interesting because the, the sycamore fig tree, this is an example of one, um, was a tree that is not like our sycamore trees here, um, different type, which is why it's noted as the sycamore fig tree. It would bear fig fruits. It was quite a wide tree, which was easily to climb, easily climbable. And so Zacchaeus has put himself up in the sycamore fig tree. And in this picture of Zacchaeus in the tree, there is a certain symbolism that's communicated to us. You see, the fig tree, not the sycamore fig tree, but the regular fig tree, we read about it in the, in the New Testament. We read that Jesus cursed the fig tree because there was no fruit on the fig tree. This tree was the, the national emblem of Israel. This was kind of like representative of the, the fruitfulness of the nation, the fig tree. Normal figs were tasty. They were lovely. They were highly desirable. When Jesus cursed the tree, it's because of its lack of fruit. That would have had meaning to them because these fruit were desirable. But the sycamore fig tree bore fruit that was inferior. Nobody really cared for them. Nobody really wanted them. Just like Zacchaeus, up in this tree, looked at as inferior, unwanted. And so it's almost as if he's in the right place in people's minds. And yet Zacchaeus had a different kind of fruitfulness, a superior fruitfulness that Jesus was aware of, such that Jesus didn't see him as to be overlooked and undesirable, but actually would call out to Jesus, call out to Zacchaeus and say, come, I'm coming to your home. Now, to go to someone's house in first century Israel and sit down and have food at table was regarded a a real sense of, that's where covenants were made over food. That's where business was done. That's where agreements and affirmation were shared. So it wasn't just, ah, Zacchaeus, I'm going to come to your house. Let's have a few snacks. And No, no, this was a statement that was being made. 
as we look now, we'll see from verse 8. Even though the people were... And you know, people will have all kinds of things to say when they see the Lord at work in your life. You know, they say the haters hate, right? That's okay. Because if you know that you are walking in the will of God, you don't even have to defend yourself against them. Zacchaeus didn't even say nothing. I mean, the fact that the Lord had called him was statement enough. And so you might find yourself in that position where people want to put their mouth on you. It's fine. You don't even have to say nothing. You don't even have to worry from you know you're in. You know, when we started in ministry, we started first in music ministry, and a lot of you will know this. And at the time when we was using rap as a means of communicating the gospel, we were constantly, I mean, this is like early 90s. Yeah? So... In the UK, there wasn't really anything by way of Christian rap. I remember one day a brother sent us a letter. I wish Pastor Robbie is here. I'm sure he would remember every sentence in that letter. Sent us a letter, a whole A4 size, and basically telling us all the reasons why what we were doing is of the devil. Uh, absolute sis, I'm telling you. You see, Ali's got it good them days here. You know. <laughs> Listen, giving us every reason why what we were doing was of the devil, but not one reference to scripture. Not one reference to God's word. So there wasn't a sense that we felt we were being challenged by God. Because at the end of the day, who are we to argue with God? And if somebody's going to present something and say, look, I believe that this is what the Lord is saying, according to his word, I feel that you're... Any one of us, it doesn't matter who we are, how long we've been saved, how long we've been in ministry, we have to humble ourselves before the Word of God and, and, and at least investigate that. So we shouldn't reject you know, uh, accountability. or. But this was completely void of any scripture at all, any reference to, to the Word of the Lord. And yet, you know, we sat down with a brother and just kind of get, went through scripture and said that this is why we believe this to be the will of God. And he wasn't having it, but he didn't have to. No. It's fine. We just got on with it. Amen. And wisdom is justified by its fruit. Amen. Amen. And so we see here, Zacchaeus doesn't defend himself. He just focuses on his relationship with the Lord. Here in verse 8, Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, notice what Zacchaeus calls him. He says, Lord. He recognizes Jesus as his Lord. And again, that's not a casual statement. That's recognizing whatever you say goes. What, your will is to be my will. And my will is to be conformed to your will. And so he says, look, Lord, here and now, I give half of my possessions to the poor. So that was just like an act of charity. Like, I've got money. I'm just going to give. Like, it doesn't mean nothing to me compared to having a relationship with you. I'll give half of it to the poor. Then he goes on and he says, and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. You see, when Zacchaeus was saying, furthermore, I'm going to make right the wrong that I've done. I'm going to make restitution. He says, if I have cheated anybody, now that's a big if. We don't know, we're not told directly how Zacchaeus conducted his affairs. Not all tax collectors were extortioners. But he's saying, look, he's, he's taken ownership. He's recognizing his sinfulness his proclivity to sin, the potential, maybe even past sins that he's even forgotten. Because you know how it is when the Lord starts doing a work in someone's life, even before that they get to that point where they've completely surrendered themselves, you begin to see changes. You begin to see that transition of the work of the Spirit happening in someone's life in a way where it's almost not a surprise when they get to that place of surrender. 
because you could see how the Lord was drawing them, the Lord was working in them. If I have cheated anybody, and here he's making reference to the law, because in the law it said, if anyone steals a lamb or a sheep, they should repay four times the amount. And so he's recognizing his standing before the law and his readiness to submit to it. And so Jesus says, truly, this outcast of Israel, this person who's not even regarded as being a, a child of Abraham, truly is a son of Abraham. He's expressed Repentance, he's expressed faith, a readiness, a willingness to obey. This, all of this is characterized in Father Abraham. And then Jesus underlines, I can talk like this to Zacchaeus because the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. The king has come to save. People will be familiar with John 3.16. I remember as a child watching the Olympics, and it was the Winter Olympics, and remember I got excited when I saw somebody standing by the, um, the side of the bobsleigh um, uh, track course, I don't know what you call it, and it, they had a sign that said, John 3.16. And I thought that was a brilliant place just to put up that sign right there. It's going to catch by the world's TV and every. Seoul Olympics. Yeah. Praise be to God. John 3.16. What about John 3.17? Some of us as believers need to learn that verse and really take in what it means because. Very often, the way we approach people in our evangelism, in our witness to them, we carry on as if that verse doesn't exist. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Praise God, amen. God did not send his son into the world to do what? To condemn. He didn't send him to condemn. He sent him to save. So when we see people in their brokenness, when we see people in their sinfulness, let's remember that Jesus came to save. Let's not just stand in judgment over them. Let's reach out in God's love. The king also came to reward Zacchaeus has become part of the family. Jesus now tells this parable, and we're going to look at this parable from verses 11 to 27. While they were listening to this, notice, he went on to tell them a parable. This is telling the, the muttering mad people who were criticizing. Yeah? While they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable. Why? Because he was near Jerusalem. And the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. Ah, so he's, 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 he's on his way to Jerusalem. In verse 1, it says that he was just passing through. I'm in Jericho, just passing through. Where's Zacchaeus? I must needs go through Samaria. Where's the woman at the well? He didn't need to go through Samaria. It was out of his way. Jesus was going to Jerusalem. But he went out of his way into Jericho to meet Zacchaeus. But the people thought, this is it. This is the, the, the prophecies of old being fulfilled. And we're going to now ride into Jerusalem and run out the, the, the Romans. Let's look at what Jesus said. He said, a man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then, and then to return. So you imagine a, a, a local nobleman 
is going to get authorized as king. Now, this is actually making reference to a true story in their time, uh, a king called Archelaus, and you can look it up. And basically, he had to get his appointment from Rome and so had to go off in order to get that appointment and come back. So this is basically what Jesus is referring to. But in doing so, he's referring to himself. So he's going to have himself appointed king and then to return. So he called, notice, 10 of his servants and gave them 10 miners. Now, a miner was worth around three months' wages. One miner was worth around three months' wages. So 10 miners is not small money. Imagine if somebody said to you, ah, oh, look, you know what, I'm going to give you a couple, couple years' salary and just... In, in one lump sum, you'd be like, whew, that's blessed, I take it. <laughs> so, 10 miners. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. But his subjects hated him. Remember, he's going off on a trip to come back here. They hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we don't, don't bother come back here. We don't want you to be our king. Yeah, you're, you're gone, beg you stay gone. Don't come back. Yeah. He was made king, however, and returned home. Keys in the door, Lord of mercy. <laughs> then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. The first one came and said, Sir, your miner has earned ten more. Well done, my good servant, his master replied. Because you have been trustworthy in a very small matter, take charge of ten cities. Then the second came and said, Sir, your miner has earned five more. His master answered, You take charge of five cities. Then another servant came and said, Sir, here is your miner. I have kept it laid away in a piece of cloth already. That's a problem. He never had any regard even for the one miner that he was given. They wouldn't, they wouldn't keep money of that value just wrapped up in a piece of cloth. Like They were accustomed to burying wealth as a form of security. <clears throat> I was afraid of you. Why? Hmm. Because you are a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and reap what you did not sow. Basically saying, you're a greedy guy. You like to get what you don't deserve. His master replied, I will judge you by your own words. <laughs> you wicked servant. It's like, there's so many things I could say to this, but let's just stick to what you've said. Your own words condemn you. You knew, did you, that I am a hard man taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow. Really? Question mark? Really? That's how you know me. Basically, he had a distorted and wrong view of the master. The master was never that person. But that's how he viewed the master. Oh, time doesn't even permit. Sometimes when we see problems with God... What we're doing is revealing problems in our own heart. I mean, imagine, how can we find problems with he who is perfect in all his ways? Anyway, we'll keep it moving. Verse 23. Okay, so if that's how you saw me, why then didn't you put my money on deposit so that when I came back, I could have collected it with interest? Like, just put it in a savings account. That's all you had to do. Let it get little interest, bring it back. Then he said to those standing by, take his miner away from him and give it to the one who has 10 miners. Sir, they said, he already has 10. Jesus replied, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what they have will be taken away. 
You see, this servant had the wrong view of the master and was unfaithful in the master's absence with what the master had entrusted to them. Now, if you're keen-eyed and sharp mind, you will note that there's another parable that's quite similar to this in Matthew. They're similar, communicate in a sense of the same intent, but they're different. In the Matthew parable, most notably, we see that the master in the parable gave to each one according to their ability. And they received different amounts. One received one, another received two, another received five. According to their ability. So that is speaking about something different to what Jesus is communicating here. All ten servants got the same amount. One minor. And so there was a sense of equality amongst them. We know that Jesus is, in, in saying this, is actually trying to help prepare them and it's for them to reflect on. Jesus is going to go away. His, his, his status in heaven is affirmed. And he will return as King of kings and Lord of lords. Amen. And so in the meantime, each of us as his people have been... We have a sense of equality in that we've each been given a measure of faith. And so the question is, what do we do with that? We will be rewarded according to what we do or don't do. I feel that this is something that's so underplayed, so underpreached. In 1 Corinthians 5, the Apostle Paul says, And we all will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. To give an account for what we have done in this body. That's speaking to believers. The word there, judgment, is not the same word that's normally used for judgment, like in the book of Revelation. White throne judgment, (laughs) fire and furnace and condemnation. It's evaluation. It's like at work it's annual appraisal season. You know them ones? And it's not like, oh, it's just being used as an excuse to get you thrown out. It's... Well, it depends what your boss is like. (laughs) Depends what your boss is like. (laughs) But really and truly, it's supposed to be, how can we bring out the best in you? Let's look at what you've been doing, how it's been going, and how things could be better. That's the the basic. And so that that word is is the beamer seat. The, the, The assessment that believers will stand before God and give as we stand before the Lord Jesus. And so, at the very least, we've all been given a measure of faith. What are we doing with it? You've got some people who fundamentally are false converts. Matthew 7 says, many will come and say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do mighty works? Didn't we prophesy? Didn't we? And Jesus' response to them will be, depart from me, you worker of what? Iniquity, wickedness. You worker of wickedness. And one, one time me and you was cool, but then, then I, you know what? You just, no, no, no. I never knew you. I never knew you. Because those people in standing before the Lord were relying on their works rather than his. Their claim before the Lord was, look at what I done. That was the way in which they were trying to understand and present their righteousness based on what they'd done. And so they never had it. Completely unbiblical, bro. And so when it comes to the, 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 the standing before the Lord as one who professes faith, not only will there be a distinction between those who um, have, have claimed to have works and are reliant on those, but also those who have no fruit at all. Those who have no righteous response at all. 
James 2, verse 17 says this. Faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Or as we would know, faith without works is dead. And so there's a sense in which this servant claimed to have faith, if you like, as in represented by the minor. But there was no fruit from it at all whatsoever. And he was just as bad as those who rejected. Those who rejected. Those in, in, the, in the parable who said, send the messages to tell him we don't want him to come back here. And so, this verse here, 26. Everyone who has more will be given. It, it's, not, it's not the size of your fruitfulness. You could have a little bit of fruit. And the Lord's like, praise God. And you will be rewarded for that. And yet, for those who have no fruit whatsoever, like the fig tree... That got cursed. Why? Because it had no fruit. It had leaves. It gave the appearance of, oh, this, this is a, a, a fruit bear. This, this, I'm supposed to be able to go up and get my hunger satisfied. But it never had any fruit. And so Jesus cursed it. And that was a picture of Israel. And the fact that they never brought forth genuine fruits of repentance. And that ultimate fruit was receiving the Messiah. And we'll see that again in a minute. The ultimate fruit was, have you received, have you accepted the king? And they hadn't. And we see here again, this servant had not accepted the king. He accepted his gifts, his blessings, accepted his minor, accepted his money. And we live in a, in, a, in a culture where people are quick and ready to want to accept God's blessings and goodness. But no corresponding fruit of actually having accepted the king himself. And so even if you've got a little bit of fruit, praise be to God, it will be rewarded. But if there's none, there will be rebuke. And verse 27, but those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. This isn't gentle Jesus, meek and mild. This is Jesus demonstrating that God is a God of judgment. And this cannot be absent from our gospel. This cannot be absent from our declaration of who God is. Because we don't understand his goodness unless we have an understanding of his wrath and his anger and his power and his authority to judge sin. And again, we'll see more of that. So for us as believers, there's a necessity for us to consider what does fruitfulness in my life look like? What does fruitfulness in my life look like? Here's a, a rabbinic proverb. Run to fulfill the lightest duty, even as the weightiest, or as if it was the weightiest. Do the smallest thing, as if it was the biggest thing. For the reward of a duty done is a duty to be done. Or the reward of a duty done will be equivalent to a duty that could have been done or would have been done. We saw that in Luke 16 when Pastor Rob took us through. Jesus said this, Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So God is infinite. Size has no re relevance to him. Because he's infinite. And so he sees the small things as if it were big. The big things as if it were small. And so as we're faithful, even in the small things. So let me just give you 
four things to consider as to pursue fruitfulness and to build your faith. If the minor is representative of faith, how can you put your faith to work in order to see your faith in Christ? And it must first start with faith. Not just accepting the blessing, but accepting the king. These things are not rocket science, but they're actually things that we so often struggle with. Like it's the basics, right? Firstly, praying for others. Praying for others. You know, there's one of the beautiful things we experience coming together and pray on a Tuesday is, is being able to share rejoicing in the answer to prayer. And so praying for others is such that that in and of itself is a, is a fruitful expression of faith that then is rewarded even as we see God answering prayer. It strengthens us to be, to be praying more, Amen. serving in the Lord's work contributing to the work of God's kingdom. Not just living for ourselves, but in some way taking of our time, effort, and energy to contribute to the work of the Lord. Giving generously. Again, in Luke 16, you can't serve two masters. If we've struggled to give financially to the Lord, then it's not that we've got money where we're... we're, we're struggling to part with money's got us it's got a grip on us it's got a hold on us sharing the gospel one of the, one of the fundamental challenges of exp- growing in our faith affirming our faith is the readiness to share it with others even in small ways and so these are things that you can give yourself to that would see a return on the deposit of faith that the Lord has placed in your heart and life. The second section, sorry, the third section. The king has come to rule. Jesus, after Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethpage and Bethany at the hill, called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say, the Lord needs it. Notice, this is one of those instances where Jesus refers to himself as who? Okay. People say, oh, where did Jesus ever claim to be God? Where did he ever? This is another one of the instances. So you can side note that. Verse 32. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. If they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. pile of stones. Can you see what it says? If you can't see it, squint your eyes.
Can you see it? Who can't see it yet? Squint your eyes, squint your eyes, trust me, you'll see it. What am I looking for? It's, there's, there's a message. The stones are crying out. <laughs> you see, this is a reference to certain scriptures. So in Habakkuk 2, verse 11, we see that the um, prophet declared that the stones would cry out in judgment against Babylon. And so this was a, a, a graphic way of saying that we need to hear and represent, declare the Lord. Even inanimate objects will do it. Now this is the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And yet, as Jesus was making his entry, as prophesied in Zechariah 9, and in fact, let's just have a look at that. Zechariah 9, 9. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly, and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. You wouldn't expect a king to come riding into town on a donkey. This prophecy would have sounded weird to the hearers in its time. And yet, this king is a king of authority and power in the prophecy because in verse 10 it says, I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem and the battle bow will be broken. This is an expression of authority and power. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from river to the ends of the earth. And so this is a prophecy of the coming king. And yet, as Jesus approached Jerusalem, he was on the descent from the Mount of Olives, looking at Jerusalem spread out before him. It says he wept over the city. He said, if you, even you, had only known this day, what would bring you peace? But now it is hidden from your eyes. You ever had that feeling when you're praying for someone or you're, you're sharing with someone and they so readily dismiss Jesus as if there's some better option through which they're going to find peace and fulfillment. And you just feel, if only you knew if only you would just understand all who Jesus is. And, and this is Jesus feeling that for Jerusalem. If you had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes because they were resistant. They were rejecting. And then he goes on to say, the day will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another. Notice he said before the stones will cry out. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. To reject the Lord is to only accept the guarantee of coming judgment. And Jesus predicted this as he was going into Jerusalem. And in AD 70, that's less than one generation after Christ, Titus Vespasian came into Jerusalem and, and sacked it. And this is what it says uh, uh, about um, how that happened. Large parts of the holy temple, both inside and out, were covered in sheets of gold. This is how the temple was constructed, with, with panels of gold uh, on the wall, on the gates. The doors to the temple were also heavily plated with gold. When the temple was put to fire, large amounts of gold melted and poured into the stones surrounding the area. 
Archaeological evidence suggests the Romans dismantled the, step, the temple stone by stone to acquire the gold. And so it, there is, the archaeologists will show that actually Jesus' words were literally fulfilled. Jesus does not talk and miss. The stones were literally piled one on top of another in the efforts to, to loot out every flake of gold that they could get. The king must come and rule. And yet, as we conclude, we see that the king will also clean up. So as Jesus goes into the temple, look what happened. Jesus entered the temple courts. He began to drive out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Now let's not get it twisted. God is not against selling, he's not against profit, and he's not against interest. We just saw that in the last parable. So let's be balanced. Let's not be guilty of the poverty gospel. Right? We don't want the prosperity gospel, but let's not be guilty of the poverty gospel. Let's be balanced people. God is not against making money. But what he is against is the illicit gaining of funds. Because what they were doing is, the, the people would come, proselytes and, and believers would come from far and wide. And they wouldn't be able to bring their sacrifice with them on the travel. So they would bring their money to buy a sacrifice. But in order to buy a sacrifice, you had to use the temple shekel. And so you go through Bureau de Change. Yeah? And they would be charging extortionate rates in order for people to be able to get the, the temple shekel and be able to buy their sacrifice. Just to make money off what? People coming to, to, to worship God. Look at the power and authority of Jesus. This is one man driving out. You know that the temple had its own police force, temple guards. These were the people that first came to arrest Jesus. One of them got his ear cut off by Peter. They had their own police force. None of them could touch him because they couldn't wrong him. They knew what was going on. They knew the hustle. And nobody said anything. Nobody done anything because they were all profiting from it. Furthermore, look, every day he was teaching at the temple. It's not only that he ran them out, but he took up residence and no one could run him out. Every day he was teaching in the temple. Talk about the authority of the king. But the chief priests, the teachers of the law, the leaders, all the higher-uppers, the ones who are supposed to be setting the moral example and leading, were trying to kill him. They were so incensed. Rather than repent, rather than, you know, humble themselves and recognize their wrong, they felt shamed, they felt indignant, they felt robbed. This, this man's going to come and distress the program, not knowing that he's the king. He's the king of kings. Yet they could not find a way to do it because all the people recognized, all the people hung on his words. So for us today, we see that the king has come to save. He's come to seek and save the lost. We recognize that in his coming to save, he will reward the righteous. However small or big our efforts. But there is an expectation that the Lord would see fruit in our lives the fruit of the faith that we profess.
if we are unengaged, if we are unresponsive, unfruitful, you know, this, this phrase, the stones will cry out. We often hear that as used when it's associated with, you know, singing God's praise. People are like, oh, shh, man, you can't sing. Oh, if I don't sing God's praise, the stones will cry out. Yeah, yeah, it's, it is true. But let's also recognize that the stones will cry out in judgment. You know, Frederick Nietzsche was a, a philosopher um, uh, of, of old who said that God is dead. Frederick Nietzsche has a tombstone with his name on it. That, 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 time, that, that tombstone is crying out with his date of birth and his date of death. No one can resist God and win. I'm going to invite the... Um, invite us to stand as we pray. Where are you at today? Do you need to consider your place? Are you in a place of concern, dread? Sound of the keys at the door? The Lord... He's gone away, he's been, he's been declared and affirmed as king and he will come again. Yes. And when he comes again, it's not going to be gentle Jesus, meek and mild. But for all who know him and love him and who are in right standard with him, truly we will delight at his coming. We will rejoice as we hear the sound of the keys at the door. Because we know that the king has come and he's righteous, he's good. He's loving, he's faithful, he's just. Maybe you don't know true relationship with the Lord. Maybe you don't have yet to submit genuinely to the King of Kings. Maybe you feel that your good efforts are sufficient for you to be accepted. And the King says, no. You must first accept me and recognize that you need me above all else. Your good works are as filthy rags before me. But the king will give you righteousness. The king will give you his own righteousness and cause you to know forgiveness of sin and right relationship with God. And so I, I appeal today, let us seek the Lord while he may be found. Let us accept the king and not reject him. Let us not rely on ourselves or have a wrong view of him as owing us anything. Lord, we stand before you today and we thank you for your word to us. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that in your first coming you fulfilled all that was spoken of, the Messiah who would come. And you have given us reason for belief, reasons for faith. Lord, you have given us clear revelation of yourself. And we pray, Lord, that you would so work in our hearts that that would result in genuine faith, a faith that is fruitful, a faith that is responsive. Lord, we pray that we would be able to receive reward for our faith expressed, outworked, demonstrated, knowing that, Lord, we will just take all of our rewards and cast them before you because you alone are worthy. And so, Lord, we ask that you would continue to have your way among us, in us. Change and transform us, Lord, that we might delight at the sound of your keys in the door. In Jesus' name.
Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.